This is the Turn on the Jets podcast. I don't have to convince any one of those eight defensive coaches how effed up I am. These players, they want to defend MetLife Stadium for you guys. Here's your host, Joe Caparosa. Welcome to the Turn on the Jets podcast. I'm Scott Mason from the Play Like a Jet podcast. And today on the Turn on the Jets podcast, you're going to get a free preview of an episode of Badlands. This was episode number three of the 10-part docu-series that involved Dalbin Asario coming on to talk about the 2015 Jets, Todd Bowles' first year, the Jets' only winning record in the entire decade since the magical 2010 season that ended up with them losing in the AFC Championship to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Dalvin was, of course, joined by the usual co-hosts of Badlands, Joe Caparoso, host of this podcast, and Connor Rogers of Bleacher Reports Stick to Football. So give this one a listen and then consider subscribing because for just $9.99, you can get all 10 parts of the docuseries plus the weekly Badlands podcast, and it's a one-time fee, gives you a one-year subscription. You get the entire docuseries and the weekly podcast. One hell of a bargain, so if you haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and do so. And if you're still not sure about subscribing, go ahead and give this a listen. Pretty sure it'll help you change your mind. As most people, I'm sure, remember, the Jets went 10-6 and six the first year under Todd Bowles and Mike McCagnan, missing the playoffs when they lost to Rex Ryan's Buffalo Bills in Week 17. This season in the AFC is the year that the Denver Broncos made the Super Bowl and ultimately beat the Carolina Panthers. Had the Jets made the playoffs, they would have played A.J. McCarron and the Cincinnati Bengals in the first round before matching up with a Denver team who had a very good defense but had some inconsistencies on offense. This was also a year that the Jets did beat the New England Patriots in a key Week 16 win. However, they did have earlier season losses to an Oakland Raiders team that did not make the playoffs and a Houston Texans team that started T.J. Yates at quarterback They also blew a double-digit lead in New England in their other matchup earlier in the season. This was one of those rare windows that was opened up where the Jets spent overly aggressively on veterans, adding Darrell Rivas, Antonio Cromartie, Brandon Marshall, among a few others, to their 2014 roster, and got a career year from quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, breaking many Jets' passing records in the process, while Marshall and Eric Decker both went over 1,000 yards receiving a rarity for New York Jets offensive history. So while this season is remembered somewhat fondly, at least compared to some of the other seasons that we've discussed, ultimately it was really a rare miss window where this team could have potentially made a deep playoff run. Connor and then Dalvin, what are the first things that come to your mind when you think back on this season? Well, I think for me, it's all the outliers that existed in this season. Like you said, Joe, there was this bizarre window that opened up when you look at it. Obviously, Brandon Marshall, they acquire him in a trade uh, that was you know, heavily influenced by Todd Bowles. This was a really good start for the entire regime. I think that's no secret. And I think you look at what Brandon Marshall did here that season. I mean, he was one of the best wide receivers in football that year. And more importantly, they had one of the best wide receiver duos in football that year with him and Eric Decker. They stayed healthy. They were extremely productive. Uh, They were the reason that Ryan Fitzpatrick had this this wild, you know, career kind of season. Actually, one of the better statistical seasons we had seen from a Jets quarterback, which is absolutely ridiculous to say, but it's 
It's, I mean, it's factual. It's literally on paper. So both of those guys go over a thousand yards. B Marsh over fifteen hundred yards, which even in this era is extremely, extremely impressive. So for a Jets fan base, and I know this is us, you know, us three were doing a pot at the time of the season. We were very on top of the season together. We weren't used to that kind of offense through the air, that kind of production. We had been there, you know, 2009, 2010. You see the offensive line. You see what Thomas Jones can do. But this aerial threat that the Jets had that year with B. Marsh and Decker combining for 26 touchdowns and, you know, that many receiving yards and this massive target share. They had over 300 targets combined, which is absolutely outrageous at the time. And they still had a thousand yard back in Chris Ivory. It just goes to show you that this was such a weird year because this was a team in green and white that could actually score points. But unfortunately, even with the 10 wins, they could not sneak into the playoffs where, much like the Rex teams, they would have been dangerous. I don't know if they would have been as dangerous as those 9 and 10 teams. That would be a little bit hyperbole to say. But I think they would have been a team that not a lot of teams would have felt like running into. Yeah, I mean, I think Connor kind of set it up beautifully because the thing that jumps out at me, I mean, we're talking about, an, uh, you know, and Chan Gailey deserves all the credit in the world, right, for just being the most competent offensive coordinator that the Jets have had in the, in the last decade or so. Um, but I think for me, you're talking about a team that you, you have to remember, right, like this was a team that in yards were top 10, in points were 11th, and that was offensively. Defensively, they were fourth in yards, ninth in points allowed. And they, it was a balanced team. They were, they were 13th in passing yards, and they were 10th overall in the league in rushing yards. I mean, as a team, they ran for almost 2,000 yards or averaging 4.2 yards a carry. And I think it's insane to realize that, you know, and to, to Connor's point, like the, the, Rex, the Rex teams were really powered by the defense, right? Mark Sanchez was not – he was not tasked to do much. And then he elevated his game in the playoffs, but he was not tasked to do much. This team, this 2015 team, was a team that was hitting on all facets, man. I mean, Darrell Revis – was very much his old self up until about, I think, week 11 when he got the concussion against the Texans. But, I mean, this was a defense that was getting turnovers, right? And I think, Joe, I, I remember this. You, you tweeted this out distinctly after the 2015 season. Uh, expect a, re- a regression because those turnovers, you don't get that in bunches the way the Jets were getting. Remember the Monday night game against the, against the Colts where Revis got the interception and the, and the fumble? Those things just didn't really happen. And so I, I remember even thinking, I was like, man, they, they'd get through Cincinnati. And then that was Denver when Peyton was essentially a wash of himself at that point. And I felt I was like, if they get in, I think they have a real legitimate shot because they were good. They were good and they were lucky in a lot of facets that you don't really see teams get in one season. They were good offensively. They were good defensively. They were good on special teams. I mean, they were averaging almost two points a drive, which was top 10 in the league at that point. And so I think it's, it's insane to think just how squandered that opportunity really was. It was such like, and I think you guys pointed out, how many weird outliers were in this season for this franchise and just with some players. If you think back, and Connor, we mentioned this in a previous podcast, Calvin Pryor, who generally did not have a successful NFL career, was pretty good this year. And I'm thinking back to that Monday night game, I think he had an interception of Andrew Luck. That was a game I think the Jets forced like four or five turnovers. But Pryor, you know, 
look like he was going to be like a solid long-term starter at safety this year. Obviously, did not turn out to be the case long-term. You also got good enough production from guys like Marcus Gilchrist and Buster Screen to complement uh, everyone else in the secondary, which would not hold for much longer. And Marshall's season, I mean, Marshall was uncoverable this year, and it was arguably one of the best, if not the best season of his career, and probably a forgotten wide receiver season of this past decade because the Jets didn't ultimately make the playoffs. But really in elevating Fitzpatrick's play. Marshall, when you think back to their big wins on that that season, this was a year the Jets beat the Giants in, in overtime, and a year that they beat New England in, in overtime. So you talk about dream wins for a Jet fan to get to beat the Giants and Patriots uh, back-to-back times uh, in overtime in one season. Uh, and both of those wins were heavily uh, involved. Could Brandon Marshall taking over down the stretch? And of course, with Fitzpatrick, he sort of had this crazy productive outlier year. We've seen some other flashes or stretches where he's done it in Tampa and Miami, but never this consistently over a season. And Chan Gailey, who's actually going to be the Dolphins offensive coordinator, ironically enough, uh, next year, uh, this next year was terrific for the Jets this season. Very creative with how he used Quincy and Nua as the team's H-back uh, and sort of has a movable chess piece. And it's kind of interesting to think how he's going to pigeonhole guys to do comparable things with Miami's uh, overall roster next year. And this was a season that in many ways was deceiving and was kind of clear uh, to regression because if you remember, they started really fast, but then they sort of had that mid-season tank that dropped them to five and five uh, before they had a five-game winning streak against a really bad Dolphins team, a really bad Titans team who ended up, I think, picking first in the draft the next year or had the first pick before they traded it, um, a bad Giants team, uh, New England who was didn't really need the game and was resting some key players, and then uh, Dallas who I think was starting Kellen Moore at the time and was four and 12 the year. So they basically handled business against four bad teams and then were able to beat New England to get to 10 and five and on the cusp of making the playoffs before blowing a game to Buffalo who actually swept them that year. So when you look at their six losses, they lost twice to Buffalo who didn't make the playoffs last year. They lost to TJ Yates. They lost to an Oakland team who didn't make the playoffs. They lost to Philly early in the year. I don't remember whether they made the playoffs or not that year. I'm pretty sure they didn't. Um, So it was sort of a weird up and down year. And what's interesting is that that five-game winning streak basically bought Mike McCagnin and Todd Bowles four uh, four years because they stunk the next three years after. But everyone would always point back and say, well, they went 10-6. and Everyone forgets they were 5-5 five and five and basically beat a bunch of bad teams to get over 500. If that winning streak doesn't happen or they lose even one of those five games, I think the they are relieved of their jobs much earlier. And this was a season that Mike McCagden won executive of the year of uh, for Todd Bowles. I don't remember if he got any votes for coach of the year, but he was definitely in the discussion uh, for getting the team to 10 wins and sort of continuing this Jets tradition that Adam Gase ultimately broke uh, of a new coach being really good in his first year for the Jets. Uh, at the time, Connor, why don't you do McCagden and then Dalvin, you could talk about Bowles. What were sort of like y- your year one impressions on what you saw from McCagden and then Dalton, what were your year one impressions on what you saw from Bulls? Well, I really liked that they were aggressive in the trade market to get Brandon Marshall and not really give up much in return to go take a flyer on a player like that, that you knew could do a lot of good things for you in a one year kind of window, maybe two year kind of window. And even the same for Fitz because they needed some kind of backup quarterback that you knew could come in and play and that's exactly what Fitz was and has and always will be 
And I think when you look at it, the problem was, Joe, is that they were kind of short-sighted in some of the moves. Some of the moves, and they were well aware that they were probably Band-Aid moves, but some things just really didn't work. You know, obviously some of the draft picks did not work out over time to supplement those players that were Band-Aid deals. And also the most important thing to know with this team was is that they kind of got really lucky with lack of injuries on the defensive side of the football that season. I mean, you look at... David Harris and Demario Davis and Marcus Gilchrist, I mean, they all start 16 games. Mo Wilkerson, they all played 16 games. I mean, Revis played 14. Sheldon Richardson and Leonard Williams combined for almost 40 quarterback hits. Mo had 12 sacks. There's all these weird nuggets about that year. Of course, Calvin Pace played 16 games. That's not surprising at all. Lorenzo Malden played 15 and actually had four sacks and 12 quarterback hits and then never stayed healthy after that ever again. And so when you go get down to it, it's almost a bizarre kind of season where you look at it and you go, everything broke right. And the best they had was 10 and six and not making the playoffs. And that's kind of my fear of history repeating itself where you look at Adam Gase again, finishing six and two, and things were kind of a cupcake schedule down the stretch here for the Jets. So it's going to be interesting to see how that breaks. But I think the most notable thing from the front office in this is that they just weren't ready to fill those holes that were so evident when you acquired that many veterans. You know, the Revis deal was very, very owner-influenced. That was out of their hands and put them in a tough spot from the get-go. But there was really no plan for corner after that. That was a huge problem. And Tremaine Johnson does not count as a plan because that was throwing the most money at the most overpriced free agent on the market. So and there's just a lot of moves on here that at the time it was great to go for it in that window. And then I understand tearing down and starting over with a young quarterback, but the rest of the roster was really forgotten and overlooked. Yeah. And I mean, I think you kind of saw the, the, the rest of their tenure suffer from that, right? Because they just absolutely did not plan for life after these veterans. Right. And if anything, they just doubled down for me. It's interesting, man, because when the Jets hired Todd Bowles and Joe, I know you get a lot of these guys in your mentions. So, about, oh, well, you know, if only McCagden had gotten a chance to pick his own head coach, but people have to remember like Todd Bowles had just won assistant coach of the year. Right. And he came highly regarded him and McCagnan knew each other from the Washington days. Like this wasn't just like a shotgun marriage, you know, like McCagnan signed off on this. He went and picked up Bowles from the airport. And I think for me, what was fascinating was that this was a guy who, and remember like Geno Smith was supposed to be the starting quarterback of this team. He gets his jaw broken and then suddenly you have to turn it over to Ryan Fitzpatrick. And that's a lot of adversity for a team with a new head coach to deal with. And Bowles didn't even blink, right? Like he was just like, listen, man, we're going to go out there. We're just going to keep playing ball. And then remember that first weekend against Cleveland, Josh McCown was doing Josh McCown things, right? And then McCown gets hurt. They have to turn to Johnny Manziel. And that really turned that game around because when McCown got hurt, they were down seven, nothing. And they were reeling. And then remember Brandon Marshall catches that ball and then he gets stripped and then he comes back and strips the cornerback. Uh, so, I mean, by all accounts, they could have lost one of those games that you were talking about, Joe, that probably would have not given them as much of a leash as they could. But I remember thinking, and it's ironic because the Todd Bowles' first year, the play, the coach who won assistant coach of the year was Kyle Shanahan that year. It's Kyle, Todd Bowles' first year as a Jets head coach. And now look at him. like He's coaching in the Super Bowl now for the 49ers. So I, I think, it, like, I remember thinking, I was like, that's going to be us because this was a guy who got it. This was a guy who had the defense firing on all cylinders. But 
like Connor alluded to, like there were so many missteps. There was no plan. And there was a lot, and there was a lot of things that they got right, that they got lucky on that year that you just knew they weren't going to get. But I, I was one of those people that I was like, well, you know, they won 10 games. So maybe you do run it back. Right. I didn't want them to run it back with Fitzpatrick, but I was like, you know, at the very least they run it back. But I did think that the Jets had gotten it right because I felt like Todd Bowles was, you know, he was a, he was a mature coach. He understood this. He, he handled that Geno Smith thing real, like from a, from a, from a perspective that I think it, I think it kept the team together. That could fracture any team, and he didn't allow that to happen. When Revis started falling off the cliff, he always went to bat for his for his players in a way that wasn't like Rex, right? Where it was like, oh, it's all on me, it's all on me, but just in a much more mature way that I absolutely thought it was going to work. And that's why, like, I was definitely surprised that the that the wheels fell off the way they did. But it's also like this is why the relationship between Joe Douglas and Adam Gates is so vital. If you don't have that relationship, if you're not in this together, and I know it came out this week that Joe Douglas wouldn't have paid C.J. Mosley and Le'Veon Bell, right? And that seems like something that's very similar to Adam Gates' way of thinking. You don't pay a running back and you don't pay an inside linebacker that much money. Bowles and McCagnan just never seemed like they were on the same page. Um, and I, I, even though I don't like Adam Gates, I do think that he should have a general manager that he shares more in common with. And it's interesting to see McCagnan and Bowles not be on the same page considering their past relationship. But I mean, yeah, I, I thought I thought the Jets hit it out the park, and I was like, man, ten and six. I was like, this is probably going to be a nice little run. But you kind of saw the cracks coming because they did not take steps to supplement that middle class of the roster. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget at the time. Bowles was coming on the heels of Rex Ryan, sort of the over-the-top, bombastic drama all the time, and he was a welcome sort of calmer more even keeled presence, uh, which ultimately would be, you know, flipped around as a negative on him towards the, you know, the final years when things didn't work out. But the Geno thing was a few weeks before the season. I think he started the first preseason game or it was right before the preseason started. And the Jets really didn't miss a beat. And it's always an interesting question to wonder if Geno is a starter that year. Is he about as good as Fitzpatrick? Is he way worse than Fitzpatrick? Or is he better than Fitzpatrick? Uh, with all those weapons and in Chan Gailey's offense, we only saw him play uh, a little over a half against Oakland in one of the games that the Jets ultimately lost on the road. He was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. Uh, but definitely an interesting question around that. Also during this season, there was some type of incident on a team plane on the flight back, and they ended up cutting Quinton Copel's midseason. I'm pretty sure that uh, was another thing that flared up during the season, and they moved on from him. This was, you know, Leonard Williams' rookie year, so they had him on the defensive line, and probably the second best overall year he played besides his second season. Uh, and they had Wilkerson, who had maybe the best year of his career, went over double-digit sacks. I remember he had that monster game on Thursday night against Buffalo and really led to him getting that big contract, which turned into being a disaster. And, you know, the problem was... When the Jets missed the playoffs, they did not take a look and realize how many things were not going to be sustainable that happened in that 2015 season and how of a unique window it was. There is definitely a path where the Jets don't blow a game to TJ Yates and they don't blow a double-digit lead in Gillette. If you remember, Brandon Marshall dropped that wide-open touchdown pass. And they go 12-4 and in this one random year and win the AFC East. And then who the hell knows what happened? But it was a one-year window, and the Jets – Go on this prolonged holdout with Ryan Fitzpatrick, which basically screws up the entire offseason. He finally signs for the one-year $12 million contract on the first day of training camp. After we hear the whole summer, it could be Geno, or they might go somewhere else with quarterback. Uh, they double down in the win-now window by going to get Matt Forte, uh, letting Chris Ivory walk, who suspiciously didn't play enough in the Week 17 game. 
with the draft, they use a second-round pick on a long-term developmental quarterback in Hackenberg rather than someone who could help the team immediately, which doesn't really line up to the rest of their offseason. Uh, they went and go get Ryan Clady, which turned out to be a disastrous move. They signed another defensive lineman in Jarvis Jenkins, who I don't think ever really even played a snap for the team, but they threw out a decent amount of money for him and then really tried to run it back with Marshall and Decker. And, you know, Decker gets hurt the following year. Marshall is banged up a lot throughout that season. It's still early days for Robbie Anderson, so he can't supplement the production. And Fitzpatrick, despite having a great game week two, really falls apart after that, starting with the Kansas City game. And it was it. They missed their window, and then it kind of kicked off this whole cycle that the Jets are still basically pulling themselves out of. Uh, and it was never, there was never another time where fans felt particularly good about McCadden and Bowles because Bowles' game management issues and lack of personality, quote unquote, uh, came front and center when the team was bad, and McCagnan's repeated misses in the draft and free agency started to get highlighted a little more. You know, a guy like Lorenzo Malden flashes as a rookie, puts on a bunch of weight before a year or two, and isn't a difference maker. And then you see that Bryce Petty ultimately can't play. Devin Smith can't stay healthy. He misses his entire second year. Jarvis Harrison doesn't even make it to year two. Deion Simon doesn't make it to year two. And you see this first draft class start to fall apart a little bit. And even the rookie they had in 2016 and Darren Lee in the first round uh, doesn't really play out with a big rookie year. And we know what happened with Hackenberg. When you look back, Connor and then Dalbin, if you want to follow up to his thoughts, what would you have done differently after that 2015 season and how it played out than the route the Jets ultimately went? Well, I think obviously you don't double down on, on trying to catch, you know, flash in the pan again. I think that's the most important thing. And that's what 2015 was. You have the whole Fitz negotiation debacle. And I think when you look at that situation, you have to evaluate a guy like Fitz, who I believe was about 32 years old at the time of those contract negotiations, maybe even 33. You kind of knew what he was. I mean, there's just not a lot of quarterbacks that at that phase of their career turn this corner and can be that reliable consistently. And he wasn't even really that reliable in 2015. He had a really good year, but you could see where the inconsistency shined. Did you think that you'd get a fully healthy year out of all those players? Did you think you'd get Brandon Marshall to be you know, everything would stay perfect because if it's not, there was always some problems there. And obviously, Eric Decker got hurt. So once again, it comes back to injuries. It comes back to doubling down on Fitzpatrick, which is just an absolute insane move from any team. And they saw the Bills do it, and then they did it, which was crazy to me. I think they just waited a year too long to tear things down. And another reason you could see that, you go to the draft, and they draft Aaron Lee at 20, when Joe, something we talked about on a, you know another episode, is that the trade offer that they passed on with Dallas because Dallas wanted to move up with Paxton Lynch would have netted them extra premium capital on day two of the draft where they could have started to build out this roster a little more. But instead they do, you know, the one foot in, one foot out rebuild where they go get Darren Lee, who they thought was an impact player right away, and they re-sign Fitz to way more money than he ever should have gotten to try to give this thing one more run. But they draft Christian Hackenberg with a really, really good selection, pick 51 in the second round, to start a, a development, you know, developing a quarterback. And, and you're sitting there and you're going, well, is he even going to get the reps? So it, it comes down to poor roster management and, and not really deciding what you want to do. Now, 
to give the front office a fair shake in this too. I think a lot of that happens when there's bad ownership in place. You see the Browns do things like this. You see the Redskins do things like this. So, you know, they obviously made a bad decision when maybe they were nervous they weren't going to have a lot of time because nobody's ever given time in New York in places like I just mentioned. And it cost them because they ultimately tore themselves towards two sides and didn't end up capitalizing on either of those sides. One, which was to try to go win now, and the other was to rebuild. And when you do both those things at once, you do neither. Yeah, I mean, I think just to piggyback off that, I mean, I I wouldn't have brought back Fitzpatrick. I would have found a way to move on from Wilkerson. I mean, I think that I think because what what you kind of found yourself with, you had just taken Leo Williams the the previous year. You have him. You have Sheldon Richardson. I think that would have been more than enough. Um, I wouldn't have taken Darren Lee at twenty. I mean, it was interesting, Connor. I don't know if you remember, but we did. You myself. Jeff Lloyd and, and, and Drew did a, a group mock draft where we all kind of settled on, you know, uh, uh, trying not to stay away from Darren Lee, trying to stay away from Darren Lee. And we ended up either taking Paxton Lynch or one of the offensive linemen, right? Because I, we thought like, okay, they need an offensive lineman in there. And if there's one worth taking at 20, you take him. In the second round, you could have taken Deion Jones, who is better than Darren Lee and would have, get, would have done the same thing that you yeah. wanted him to do. I mean, I think, I think they, they found themselves – they they chose to they chose to double down on what was really a fluke season, um, and then they operated as if they were one or two moves away. Because like Connor mentioned, the trade with Dallas, like you could have netted more picks because Dallas wanted to go up and get Paxton Lynch. But even that, if you were going to stay at twenty, then you take Paxton Lynch and then you try to do, you let him do it. Because I I think I think Jet fans feel much better about the the McCagnan Bowles years if it's not spent parading Ryan Fitzpatrick as a franchise quarterback. I think it's, I think you feel a little bit differently when it's a younger quarterback. It's partly why I think Adam Gates gets a lot of the pass that he gets now because there's a young quarterback in place, right? So that's why a lot of Jet fans are like, oh, you know, we don't really know what he can do. Sam's only in year, Sam's only about to enter year three. If you had given McCagnan and Bowles a young quarterback and, and, and a young quarterback with more upside, because again, Christian Hackenberg is not that. Christian Hackenberg was a bad pick and it was arguably Mike McCagnan's worst pick but you give them a quarterback with a first round pedigree who had really good tape, who a lot of people did feel good about coming out into the draft. Then I think you, you see much more patience with those guys, but they took Darren Lee took Christian Hackenberg. That's as bad a one, two punch draft wise. as I think I can remember in the last five years, just in terms of a first and second round pick, because these are premium picks on a team that did not have much young talent in the way, especially on offense, because that's also the thing too. Then you took a defensive player in the first round when your offensive line was probably eroding, when you could have used somebody on the offensive side of the ball, and you take a, a undersized linebacker that you hope can fill this day on Buchanan role, but realistically, like age, he's not good. Um, so for me, I would have absolutely taken Paxton Lynch. At, I, I would have taken Paxton Lynch at, at twenty. I thought that that made the most sense. I would have taken Deion Jones at fifty. At fifty-two, he got taken right after Christian Hackenberg. So I would have taken him right there. Um, I think it's also fascinating to see, like in this draft, Michael Thomas was in this draft. There, there was a lot of talent in this draft in the second round that the Jets could have absolutely either made a move to. Imagine they trade back with Dallas. You have this extra pick, and then you want to go up and get a Michael Thomas. I feel much better having Paxton Lynch and Michael Thomas than I do having. Darren Lee and Christian Hackenberg. And so I, yeah, and Chan Gailey even alluded to this when he retired, right? He said that it was just, it became too difficult to have four quarterbacks in Bryce Petty, Christian Hackenberg, Geno Smith, and Ryan Fitzpatrick get all the reps. I think the Jets absolutely, I mean, the front office did themselves, and we don't know how much of it was ownership meddling. It probably was because they were like, oh, we won 10 and 6, we need to run it back. But they did themselves a disservice and they set themselves up to fail as majestically as they ended up failing. When we look forward on 
just this like ultimate legacy of this team. Again, there's been so there's so many weird sort of offensive statistical outliers that hopefully we're going to start seeing repeated again by Sam Darnold and some of the other guys that hopefully they add to help make his life easier overall. Uh, looking back on this season as it was happening, do you think this was unquestionably the most enjoying and entertaining Jets season? Since the 2010 AFC Championship run, you know, 2011, they were an eight and eight team who was eight and five. They still had a lot of shades of that 2010 team. You know, there were some fun moments in 2013 surprise eight and eight season. All that team kind of stunk. And then there's been some good things in Darnold's first two years. But is this really when you think back to all your positive Jets memories since they lost that AFC Championship game to Pittsburgh is like. 80 to 90 percent of your positive memories concentrated uh, into the moments around this season overall? I mean, I think so, because you look at the two, you know, two teams they beat in this one season are two teams that Jets fans love to beat more than anyone. And that's the New York Giants and the New England Patriots. And they beat both of them in overtime. So for and the fact that Yes, it was a Giants home game, but it's at the Jets home stadium. So everybody starts calling it Jet Life Stadium. And then they beat the Patriots at home with a shot to go to the playoffs with a win next week. So the highs of this season were so high because of how they beat certain teams, who they beat, the fact that they were doing it with this quarterback that you got to be honest with yourself at this point in time. The Jets fan, you know, now we're all fully invested into Sam Darnold. But for a very long time, there was this endless carousel of who the hell is going to be under center for the Jets each year. And then Ryan Fitzpatrick is is playing well enough. But really, they have this true number one wide receiver, a really good number two wide receiver, a good running back, an offensive coordinator that's actually doing things a little differently than we've seen in the past. So I think a lot of the highs were warranted. And it's you know, unfortunately, it was also the last year, guys, that it felt like we didn't hear the mantra of, you know, building the program or rebuilding mm-hmm. or that was 2015. <laughs> so it's like, it, you know, as we look into 2020 right now, we're, we're now it's a new regime and you hear it from Adam Gase all the time, which is such a cop out excuse because he was brought in here to win now, no matter what anyone tells you. It, it was nice just not to be rooting for losses or things like that for a season and actually enjoying meaningful wins. Yeah. And I mean, to, to your point, Con, like about the, the, the Patriots and the Giants being the teams that we absolutely want to beat. Like if you remember in the Favre year, right? Like a big reason why a lot of Jet fans were disappointed at the fact that like he got hurt when we were eight and three was because the Giants were 11 and one. And the belief was like, okay, at some point, like we're probably going to see them in the Super Bowl, and this is our chance to really knock them off, right? And we didn't get that opportunity, and then Plaxico, you know, went all cheddar bob on himself and stuff. But I mean, with the 2015 year in particular, like I remember Brandon Marshall, I remember Byron Maxwell talking so much trash about Byron Marshall, about Brandon Marshall, about how he was going to lock him up. And Brandon Marshall bodied him in that Philly game repeatedly. I mean, repeatedly, he just did. And that was, that, that was probably the, the, the first time that I remember, because again, there's something about a physical wide receiver imposing his will on, on these cornerbacks repeatedly. And he did it in the Giants game. He did it in the, he did it in the Pats game. I still remember Bob's call when Decker caught the touchdown in, in, in overtime versus New England. Like there were things that were just lined up because, again, 
on any given Sunday, it was the first time in a long time that I could remember, again, aside from this Antonio Braylon, Jericho Cotri, like you removed that, but it was the first time that I remember for 16 games thinking my team has the better offensive skill players than you have DBs to cover them. And I knew that if Fitzpatrick just threw it in Brandon Marshall's vicinity, it was going for six or a first down. And I knew that if he got it where Eric Decker could get to it, I knew it was going to go for six or a first down. I mean, you're talking about historic seasons from these receivers. And it's, I mean, man, I remember losing, losing my mind, you know, when, when Brandon, when Brandon Marshall was just absolutely sun in Washington, you know, and, and I went to that game with Jude, we weren't sitting up high with how he typically does for the sting seats. But I remember thinking, I was like, man, this is crazy. Like Brandon Marshall is just absolutely a monster. And that makes it fun. Joe, you're a, you're a former wide receiver. You under, you, like, there's something game changing about a wide receiver that can just take it to the house every time. And there's something games, there, there's an energy in the stadium when you know that you're winning games, you're winning games based off your offense. It's not just, oh man, you know, hopefully we play the field position game and we can run the ball this year, you know, and to Connor's point also, we're not rooting for losses, man. Like we were still thinking like, no, we get in, it's a wrap. Like if we can get in, it's going to be a really, really good showing. We're going to get through the Bengals because McCarron was limited. We then get Denver with a limited quarterback. Anything can happen once you get in. You saw it this year with the Tennessee Titans and Tannehill and Derrick Henry. All you got to do is get in. Once you get in, all bets are off. It was a really, really fun year. And I think that's what's made the last like three or four years not as fun because I, I, I feel like I'm still – hoping that we add more pieces in the draft. I'm hoping that we get a, a wide receiver that can do what Brandon Marshall did. I'm hoping we can get an edge rusher that closes games out because that's the thing. Like in that, in that season in particular, Darrell Revis was the closer, right? Like you, like he had so many turnovers that year and you kind of just knew like, okay, if we need a play, Revis is going to get it. If we need a sack, Calvin Pace is going to get it. Like our defense is going to do it, but the offense is also going to win these games too. And that made it real. That made it a lot more fun than just hoping that we got, you know, four yards on a first down dive and then two yards on a second down stretch. Like it was, we were winning in all facets and that made it really, really fun. I mean, it was just, it's been such a rarity to have that sort of dominant offense like that. It, it was like 1998 uh, this year. Uh, and like that one run of games that Chad Pennington had uh, when he first took over a starter where the Jets just had this offense that could not be stopped. And it was rare to, you know, always have the confidence that they had these playmakers on offense who could, you know, break off big plays and come through with their down by double digits late like they were against the Giants. And, you know, Marshall and Decker led the way. Ivory was very good that year. Uh, Powell was huge for them down the stretch. And him not playing against Buffalo was probably a big reason why they lost, you know, particularly as a receiver out of the backfield that year. Uh, they had Steven Ridley and Zach Stacy randomly rotating through his backup running back, scoring touchdowns. Even our boy Devin Smith scored a touchdown that year. Chris Owasu was playing early in the year. They just had this, like, weird, productive mix of offensive skill position players who – did more than enough to help Fitzpatrick to a very big, very productive year. And uh, it's fun to watch good offense. And it's something that I know we're all desperate uh, desperate for again, because the Jets basically, it's kind of been the same story throughout this entire window of time that we're talking to. It's, yeah, they're pretty good on defense. The offense just needs to catch up. Or, yeah, they're really good on defense, but... Uh, the offense is just so far away. This past year was another example. They were top 10 in DVOA and defense didn't really matter. And I think they're going to be really good on defense again next year. I don't think it's going to make a difference whether they make the playoffs or not, unless their offense gets substantially better overall. So before we wrap it and sign off for this episode, let's concentrate the final question 
on the Jets offense because the most exciting thing about this 2015 season, in my mind, was this awesome, for their terms at least, Jets offense. What is the one move the Jets could realistically make, Connor and then Dalbin, that could have the type of impact that Brandon Marshall had on this team in 2015 from an offensive perspective? What What is the closest thing they could do to that this year? Well, I think it's drafting Jerry Judy, and I know that comes with the you know, the built-in staple that the prerequisite that you need to acquire offensive linemen in both free agency, maybe a trade, and then you take another one in rounds two and three, you know, before the panic alarm hits off from the crowd that says you have to take one at 11, which I totally understand. But I think Jerry Judy is the type of wide receiver that gives Sam Darnold a go-to threat where it, it rounds out this receiving core and I don't know if Robbie Anderson will be back. That's going to be a big question that's up in the air. But when you look at what a true number one wide receiver is that the Jets, you know, have been looking for for a while, I think that guy is Judy. And, you know, it's tough to sit there and listen to the excuses. Well, you have to do it this way with the offensive line because there's a couple different ways to build this thing out. And you can't just neglect the skill position like wide receiver for a young quarterback. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Connor's spot on. I, I, I will bang my head against the wall if we go into the if we go into the season with uh, Jamison Crowder, Demarius the only guy. Thomas, and Vincent Smith as the only guys. Like, I'm going to I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I don't think you can do that. I think that you're setting Sam Darnold up for failure if you do that. Um, I, I agree with Connor. I mean, the, to go another direction, I'm going to go free agency. Honestly, AJ Green is a name that you're going to hear a lot of. Because I think especially if Robbie Anderson leaves, I think, again, if and I would not be opposed to them signing A.J. Green and then drafting Jerry Judy because I think the time is passed. And especially if you fill the holes in the, in, in the offensive line uh, in free agency, whether that means signing Jack Conklin, who's 26 years old, whether that, you know, whether that means going after some lower guys like D.J. Fluker or something like that, because you have to you definitely have to show up this offensive line. But it's time that the Jets joined the 21st century. Like, look at what the Kansas City Chiefs did. They had Tariq Hill. They had Sammy Watkins. They drafted Miko Harmon. Like, they didn't just sit and say, oh, yeah, we have enough. No, we're going to go and get Patrick Mahomes more. The Browns, for all their flaws, you know, and the season was a disappointment, they went and got their young quarterback, Odell Beckham. And so I think that it's high time that folks realize, like, the days of, the days of quarterbacks winning on their own, are over. Like I think I think I think we've gotten past that. And what's happening is teams are trying to build more well-rounded offenses. The Eagles, for all intents and purposes, Carson Wentz had a really good finish to the year, but the Eagles absolutely know that they have to get him some weapons because he was throwing essentially to me, you, and and Connor this this during the last six games. The Jets have to get Sam Darnold some weapons, and I think it starts with double dipping in the wide receiver market, in free agency, and in the draft. Because what you do is. A.J. Green can be a good stop holder this year as a veteran wide receiver, a veteran target, a big target, and then you get him a young weapon that grows with him because what the Jets failed to do for Mark Sanchez and, you know, when they decided to go after Plaxico Burris and bring in Derek Mason, they stopped getting Mark Sanchez the weapons that would grow with him because, again, you're, you're saddling him with only veteran receivers. Jamison Crowder is entrenched in the slot. You get A.J. Green as a big receiver, and then you add a Jerry Judy. Now that's an offense. When you bring back Chris Herndon and Ryan Griffin, that's a passing offense that can win you games in this league. With Sam Darnold, who's going into year three, which is so crucial for his development, he needs more weapons. And so I wouldn't be averse to double dipping in free agency, one in free agency, and one in the draft. Guys, appreciate getting the band back together to have this conversation about a rare, positive, generally positive Jets season. 
Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Badlands. Make sure you come back for episode four that is solely going to focus on the NFL draft and feature a conversation with Connor's running mate at Stick to Football, Matt Miller of Bleacher Report. Thank you again for listening.